morning, Rogers Park. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Phil Adams. I get to serve as privilege as one of the pastors here in our network. Uh, my wife and I, Ruth, she is up at the front here. We came to America five years ago from Ireland. If you notice an accent, I hope you do. And um, yeah, it's my joy to bring God's word to you this morning. I was in a, a bookshop a few weeks ago called uh, Unchartered Books. Um, a few years ago, we lived in Logan Square. Um, and the bookshop was there, Uncharted Books. And then recently, I actually seen an advert on Facebook, and they took all of their books, and they moved them up to the north side of the city. It's good. So my wife and I, Ruth, we were out one night. We were at um, Blowfish Ramen. I don't know if anyone knows Blowfish Ramen. But we were there, and then we went across to Uncharted Books. And I kind of figured I'd start today with some good recommendations for what to do in the city. That would be good for preaching. So Blowfish Ramen, you can look that up, and sushi, and then Uncharted books as well. But my wife and I, we were out, we were having some ramen, and then we went to Uncharted Books, and we went into this bookshop, and they were having an event, as you, uh, as you would say, and there was people, and they were sharing different books that they were reading and different ideas that they were thinking about. And one lady began to share that she has an idea in her mind of utopia, an idea as to what the world should be like or what the world could be like. And this idea that she had, it gave her direction in her life. It gave her a sense of focus in her life as to how she should behave and what she should work towards. And she said, I would be lost without my idea of utopia. And my first thought standing in that bookshop was, wow, these people are having spiritual conversations. Which made me think of a few things. Listening in, it reminded me that in a secular world, an irreligious world, or society like the one we live in in Chicago, the arts, beauty, is probably one of the, the best ways to engage with people in talking about the spiritual world, to be immersed in a novel if you know that feeling is to have an out-of-body experience. To be spoken to by a sculpture requires us to be listening to it for it to speak to us. To be reading poetry is to believe in deeper meaning. The arts open up our, our minds to something more. And as I listened, I thought, what if this lady, what if our churches aren't where people are going to have their spiritual conversations? What if our churches aren't where people are turning up with their feeling of guilt and their feeling of shame and lostness? What if they're gathering to seek in other places like bookshops? But then also what struck me listening to this lady speak in front of this audience and seeing these people listening and her talk about this idea of utopia was that she was shameless in her understanding of the world. And more than that, she was in a space, she was in a place where she was allowed to be shameless. There was no shame being cast on her for her thoughts and her ideas. All there was was a listening ear and she could give her thoughts, her ideas about the world without sniggers or giggles, which coming to our text this morning is not the story behind the verses that we are reading in our Bibles today. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. If you got one coming in the door at the back, one of the house Bibles, you can turn to page 547, 547. But otherwise, turn to Romans 
chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 16 to 17. And it reads like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning so much for the church. God, as I look out, I thank you so much, God, that you are creating a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That you are bringing people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different colors, God. And you're bringing them together to proclaim that Jesus is king of it all. And God, you're sending people out across the world to tell more people that Jesus is king. So God, I pray that we will be faithful today to your word. That we will proclaim truth today, God. So give us hearts, God, to hear, eyes to see your beauty and your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week was the beginning of a new series. If you were here working through the book of Romans in the New Testament, we were in the book of Exodus for a while, and now we're in Romans, a letter in our Bibles that was written about 2,000 years ago to a network of churches, people meeting in people's homes in Rome, in Italy. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul, a man who used to hate Christians until he became a Christian. This man, Paul, became a leader within the early churches who was instrumental in launching what we would now call Christianity around the world. Paul is now, after about 25 years of telling people about Jesus and starting churches, he's writing a letter to a number of house churches in Rome, churches in homes, churches that he has never visited. But in chapter 16, once we get there in about nine months, we will see he is relationally connected to these people. It's maybe worth us, us, us pointing out that we added a scripture when describing house churches, which is pretty helpful for clarity to give us a visual, visualization of what it looked like. But adding the descriptor can also give off the connotation that house churches are some way non-normative. I'm the house church guy over in West RP, so I'm going to talk about house churches for a second. No, not really. But actually, historically and today, small churches are the most typical way churches gather around the world. And what Paul models for us beautifully in writing this letter, this beautiful, beautiful letter, is that this network of small, shopfront, living room gathered, simple, no-fuss church families in Rome was worthy of Paul writing for them debatably the most rich, impactful piece of theological literature ever written. Paul did not think their size determined their worth. Paul seen the potential, the power that lay latent within the mustard seed, within the kingdom of God. And as Jimmy shared last week, one of the key reasons this letter was sent to Rome was that the churches in Rome were riddled with complex issues of status and, and issues of privilege. In the churches you had Jews that came from a long, rich heritage of Old Testament. They were deemed that they, from generations past, they were the people of God, the chosen people. And now these Jews have become followers of Jesus, who was also a Jew. And so their Jewish heritage was a source of pride and elevation within the community. But also in the church, 
Churches in Rome, you had followers of Christ from many other countries represented in Rome. You had Greek Christians. And they did not have the rich heritage of the Old Testament to lord over others. They did not come from the chosen people. They came from pagan backgrounds. But they were at home in Rome. They were not immigrants. They were not foreigners. And with that came a certain pride. A certain wealth and status within the broader society that the Jewish Christians just did not have. And so you had a church that was a, was a mixed bag with different sides holding up different narratives as sources of their pride. And it's into this situation that we're going to learn more and more and more about over the coming months. And I love, I love, love what Jimmy said last week that Paul's goal in this letter was to create missional unity. Paul's desire was to bring together the fractions in the churches in Rome so that they would quit squabbling and they would work together, that they would commit themselves together for the sake of the advancement of the gospel and the good news of Jesus around the world. And the way Paul is seeking to bring about this kind of unity was he was going to address the concrete, very real and tangible issues in their church in Rome. And the way he was going to do that was by doing a deep dive into what Paul refers to as the gospel. The solution to take these squabbling, factitious churches to a place of relational and purposeful unity is through enhancing and clarifying their understanding of the gospel. The gospel, as Jimmy said last week, the gospel literally means good news. Paul wants the churches in Rome to deeply understand the gospel so that the outcome of their understanding will change their lives, change their churches, and consequently change the world. And so we too in Rogers Park expect this morning the word of God to change our lives, to change our churches, and consequently change the world. <sighs> the first 15 verses of this letter, we find Paul speaking very personally. In verse 1, he, he introduces himself. He calls himself a slave. Verse 7, he sends a greeting. He opens up this letter with a level of vulnerability. Verse 8, he shows them some of his heart and he reveals his gratefulness for them. Verse 11, he tells them that he longs to see them. Verse 12, he wants to encourage them and wants to be encouraged by them. This letter isn't just work for Paul. It isn't just ministry for Paul. This is relationship. And then we get to verse 16 and verse 17 of chapter 1. We arrive at a literary transition. Verse 16 to 17, Paul transitions his style of writing. And Paul moves from a personal, vulnerable introduction. And he begins to enter into the meat, the main course of the letter. And he transitions what, what, with what we could just call a, a thesis statement. I've got two verses. If you were here during Exodus, we did about 10 chapters at once. So this morning I got two verses. It's a statement, it's a thesis statement. It works as a kind of overview for the rest of the book. And it's going to be expanded on in the coming weeks as we go through the book. And in this thesis statement, Paul, he is speaking in broad strokes. We see some of the words that are going to be big hitters in the book of Romans, salvation. Belief, righteousness, faith. It's all coming up. And all of these words and their meanings will get filled in with finer brushstrokes as we move through this letter. But there's one aspect of these 
two verses that isn't necessarily part of the thesis statement because in these verses, Paul also reveals that he has a certain posture towards what he's writing about. And Paul's posture towards this letter is not shame. It is not shame. He is not embarrassed to say what he is about to say or write. He says, I'm not ashamed of this letter. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Shame is something that's easier to feel than to define. Let me read to you a passage from a book. It's called The Bluest Eyes by Toni Morrison. It's about a black family called the Breedloves. The Breedloves did not live in a storefront because they were having temporary difficulty adjusting to the cutbacks at the plant. They lived there because they were poor and black, and they stayed there because they believed that they were ugly. Although their poverty was traditional, it was not unique, but their ugliness was unique. No one could have convinced them that they were not relentlessly and aggressively ugly. Except for the father, Choli, whose ugliness was his behavior, the rest of the family, Mrs. Breedlove, Sammy, and Pakola, they wore their ugliness. They put it on, so to speak, although it did not belong to them. You looked at them and wondered, why were they so ugly? And you looked closely and you could not find the source. Then you realized that it came from a conviction, their conviction. It was as though some mysterious, all-knowing master had given each one of them a cloak of ugliness to wear, and they had accepted it without question. The master had said, you're ugly people. And the Breedloves had looked about themselves and they saw nothing to contradict the statement. In fact, they could see support for it leaning at them from every billboard and every movie and every glance. Yes, they said, you're right. So they took their ugliness in their hands. They threw it as a mantle over themselves and they went about the world with it. That's shame. Shame is something that is imposed on you from outside of you or imposed on you from within. Shame can be because of something you have done, like Father Choli's behavior, but the focus of shame is who you are. And that's why the little girl in the story, Pakola, she prayed every night for blue eyes. Shame is an inner sense of unworthiness, reproach, dishonor, a loss of status. And the interesting thing about shame is that it does not align with what is right and wrong. Shame aligns with what people say is right and wrong. The Breedloves felt shame not because it was ugly to be black, but they felt shame because the air they breathed communicated it was ugly. Rogers Park, shame can simply be wrong. Now we're getting into a few semantics here, but this is important. To be shamed is not to be ashamed. They're two very different things. To be shamed is to have a source pressing shame down on you, telling you your confidence is misplaced, you have nothing to be confident about. But to actually be ashamed is to let the shame in, to believe it. To be ashamed is to embrace the shame, accept the shame, breathe in the shame. To be shamed is to have shame placed on you. To be ashamed is to let it in. And Paul says, no, I will not let it in and I will not listen. Let me tell you a few things about the Apostle Paul. 
In Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7, Paul says this about himself prior to becoming a follower of Christ. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Which is basically him saying, you think that you've got something to boast about? Let me tell you about my life. I was circumcised on the eighth day, which is very personal. I am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So let me explain all of this religious kind of jargon. Paul lived during a time that's not like our time. He lived during a time when the dominant culture in Israel was not secular, it was deeply religious. And in what I just read, Paul was saying that he was the epitome of an elite in his culture. A total outsider. Deemed accepted by Jewish culture and deemed accepted by God. And what Paul is saying is if there ever was a cultural insider who was being affirmed by the dominant culture who would be accepted. If there was ever someone who stood with alongside the dominant culture who was honored by it. It was me. It was Paul. The Hollywood elite. The social society elite, the academic elite, would have honored Paul. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And the eyes of the world around him, Paul was all the right things. Paul was living right. Barack Obama would have gladly placed around Paul's neck the presidential medal of honor alongside Oprah Winfrey, Alan DeGeneres, and Stevie Wonder. Everyone loves Stevie Wonder. <laughs> In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, Paul tells us some more things about himself. But this time, it's more up to date. It's a more up to date version of his life. Because what Paul was, he is no longer. He says, I have received countless beatings, often near to death. Five times at the hands of Jews, 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and in hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, with the word exposure meaning stripped, Naked. Medal of honor in the gutter. Paul had a life-altering, position-changing, status-lowering, stripping when he encountered and surrendered his life to the good news of the gospel. Paul's status plummeted. He was shamed. The air around him, the billboards in the movie said, you've become ugly. In Rome, where this letter was being sent, was a society that elevated status. It elevated power. It was the biggest city in the world. And here's Paul following a crucified king in a city where it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen because crucifixion was below them, even below their lowest criminal. A crucified king? That's no king. You have nothing to be confident about, Paul. Your confidence is misplaced. Drop your head, Paul. In Rome, there were those in the churches that were following Jesus, but they thought Paul was excessive. Paul, you're too much. You're too inclusive. 
your theology is off. Maybe you've been through one too many shipwrecks. Maybe you drowned a little bit. Paul will lead the church from here. Thank you. In Rome, Paul would one day end up being thrown in prison in Rome and eventually would be decapitated by Nero. Paul gave his life to the gospel. And his association with it, his belief in it, had caused shame, rejection to be heaped on him. So the question is, how did he withstand the shame without becoming ashamed? How did he hold it off? How did he keep it back? How did he not let it in? How was he not crushed? How did he feel the weight of rejection without dropping his head and shrinking back? What gave him the confidence to keep going, to keep speaking, to pick up his head every time it was knocked down? What gave him the audacity to speak of an alternative way of life, alternative to the powers of Rome? When the world said he was wrong, how did he have the confidence to believe that he was right? And it's here that we get the thesis statement of the book of Rome, Romans. Verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then we get the word for, which means because. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because. And then we get it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is. And then we get the thumping thesis statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm holding my confidence in the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. And he makes sure that we don't miss what he means by everyone by saying, yes, you Jews who are listening, and yes, you Greeks who are listening. All sides of every squabble in this church, everyone. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Some of you might be here today and thinking, what is this gospel that you keep talking about? Is it a religious idea? Is it a concept? What differentiates it from any another motto or idea to live by or die for? Let's look at what the gospel is for. The word we get translated from the Greek is salvation. The gospel is for salvation. Hopefully up on the screen that you can see a picture of a 15-year-old girl. In a minute, yep. Her name is Greta Thunberg. The girl in the yellow sitting down at the end there. Greta began skipping school in Sweden when she was a young teenager. She's still a young teenager, but when she was a younger teenager, she started skipping school to protest against climate change at government buildings. This photo is one of her first strikes literally last summer. She went there, two other classmates showed up with her to sit in the rain. Doesn't look like it's going too well. Probably got in trouble. But since this photo was taken, if we look to the next slide, she got some traction. And this Friday past, she inspired upwards of four million people around the world to gather on a Friday afternoon to skip school and gather with placard, placards and chant slogans in the largest ever global demonstration against global warming. Greta has a very simple message. She sailed across the Atlantic to say it. And as she stood on a platform this Friday in Battery Park, New York City, with thousands of people chanting, Greta, 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 she declared a very simple message. 
she said, our house is on fire. Our house is on fire. The funny thing with global warming, and often the church's silence on the subject, is that those fighting for the preservation of the Great Barrier Reef, for those fighting against the extinction of animals, for those fighting against rising sea levels in the Pacific Islands, they are keenly aware of a truth found in the Bible. We maybe don't give climate protesters enough credit for being attuned to a biblical worldview, and yes, not all of them may be believing in a biblical worldview, and, that they are, and yet they are attuned to it because they are feeling a biblical worldview. That our house is on fire. That our world is broken and breaking. Our fossil fuels are dirty. Our rivers are smelly. Our backyards have rats, mine does. We have landfills filled with garbage and animals eating plastic and people's homes falling into the sea. Our house is on fire, whether it's burning faster or slower or more noticeable or in a cycle. It's burning. Burning's burning. Paul later in Romans goes on to say that the whole of creation has been groaning. And one day we'll be set free from its bondage and its corruption. So a placard saying, save our planet, might not be so crazy. To skip school for. The question is... Where will this salvation come from? How will this feeling of needing saved be resolved? When Paul uses the word salvation, he's speaking in a, in a comprehensive way. When he says the gospel is for salvation, he's, speaking in an, he's not speaking in an overly concrete way. He's not talking in a simplistic way, like see, just see it from drowning or see it by a seatbelt, although those connotations are definitely part of what he's saying. And we're going to get more and more into this throughout the book of Romans. But what Paul is really talking about is a much deeper, transcendent, otherworldly saving. He's talking in visionary language. He's talking like Greta Thunberg. It's inspirational language. It's impossible language to be fixed to be made right, to be seamless and unified and clean again, to go through a process of saving that leads to transformation. Paul feels the need for it. The need to be saved from what the Bible calls sin. Sin is why our wheels need saved from eating our garbage. Did you get that? Sin is why our wheels need saved from eating our garbage. And we're all to blame. Sin is what's crushing us and crushing our planet and causing us to crush each other. What could possibly turn this world around? What could possibly turn you and I around? It would have to be huge. It would have to be monumental. It would have to transcend countries and cultures. It would have to seep into our hearts and our minds, changing our logic, changing our corporations, changing our ideologies. Whatever could change the world, save the world, would have to run deep and be potently powerful. To make us and our world good. Paul said the gospel is for salvation. The gospel is for saving us. But what it is, he says, is a power that's big enough to get the job done. It's otherworldly. It's a salvation that's beyond us, from outside of us. The gospel, Paul says, is the power of God. To follow on from Jimmy's message last week, Jimmy said two things about the gospel. He said, the gospel is not advice. The gospel is news. The gospel is news that is something happened in history. And news travels. 
And then he said that the gospel has to be communicated with words. And obviously the Apostle Paul would deeply affirm that because he traveled around the world writing letters and speaking and preaching, giving speeches, just like Grata. He maybe had a deep association because he went in boats too, like her coming across the Atlantic. He had a message to proclaim. He had words that he needed people to hear. But where our verse takes us further today is that yes the gospel can't be reduced to less than words when we are communicating it but the gospel has life beyond words the gospel is the coming together of words and power words can be powerful but it's only the gospel that is power the gospel knocks down doors the gospel brings down governments the gospel raises the dead. The gospel transforms, reforms, renews. And so as we sit here this morning in Chicago and around the world in different time zones and homes and living rooms and shop fronts, there is a power in our world. It is stronger than any nation. It's stealthy. It's unstoppable. It's on the move. It's seeping into hearts. It's bursting out of weakness. It's making people new. It's at work in here and out there, and it's unlocked, it's unleashed when it's proclaimed. Paul goes on in verses 17 to tell us why the gospel is par. He goes on to tell us what makes it powerful. And in doing so, he goes on to tell us that the gospel is the power of God because of what the gospel reveals. Paul uses reveal in the present tense. I wish you would more say it's revealing to highlight what makes the gospel powerful is not that something just happened, but what makes the powerful gospel powerful is that something is happening today. Today in the proclamation of the gospel, God is revealing his righteousness. He's making his righteous perfection manifest and available in a broken and crushed and crushing world. And this is the power that is the only hope for the world. His rightness covering our wrongness is our only hope. His rightness infusing and seeping into our wrongness and transforming us is our only hope. It's the only hope for you and it's the only hope for me. You see, Rogers Park, shame can be wrong, but shame can be right. Shame can be wrong, but shame can be right. Toni Morrison said it herself in her novel, The Bluest Eyes, Bacola's father, Choli, his shame was his behavior. His behavior was shameful. Sin has our world broken, but we are also the broken perpetrators of its brokenness. We hate the hate in the politics, but know the same hate is in our hearts. We fight the world's problems and contribute to them in what feels like equal measure. And it's embarrassing. Another event this weekend, trying to turn up at Area 51 to see if there's aliens in there. There's a lot going on, guys. <laughs> what you do this weekend? <laughs> but if an alien was found in Area 51 this weekend, what would it think of our planet? Our inequality. our hunger, our violence, and our wars. 
our poverty, our field systems, our garbage and our animals. An alien would probably shame us. And what would we do with the shame? How would we hold it back? How would we keep it back? How would we not let it in? What do we do when the shame isn't wrong, but the shame of our sin is right? What if God was come? Or if God was found? Or if God came? What would we deserve for how we've lived? This thesis statement of the book of Romans flows out of the same, of the introduction, which we've already mentioned. When I say flow, I mean in a literary sense, there is a train of thought that guides Paul through the introduction into the thesis statement. In verses 14, just before the verses we have looked at today, Paul says, in verse 14, I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Then in verse 16, we read, For, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It makes sense. Paul wants to preach the gospel to everyone, everywhere, because he's not ashamed of it. Simple. But I don't know if that is what would compel him to live the life he's lived. I'm not ashamed of it. Doesn't mean I'm going to go die for it. He is insinuating some of that, but not entirely. But using the word obligation in what he's already said, there's something deeper driving him than just not being embarrassed about the gospel. John Green, an author in his book, The Fault in Our Stars, which is a movie on Amazon for teenagers, I think. He writes this, sometimes... You read a book and it fills you with this weird evangelical zeal and you become convinced that this shattered world will never be put back together unless and until all living humans read this book. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes you read a book and it fills you with this weird evangelical zeal and you become convinced that this shattered world will never be put back together until until and unless all living humans read this book. Obligation is like shame. It's easier to feel and to define. Tell me this, why do people turn up on beaches to help turtles back in the water? Why do we pay for extra recycling bin? Why if you want to buy a stray cat, do you have to go through an adoption process? Why do we cringe at seeing islands of garbage floating in the Pacific Ocean? because we feel a sense of obligation. It's our earth. We feel a sense of attachment and togetherness that binds our fates. Paul felt this kind of obligation. Paul looked out and he said, these people are my people. The wise are my people. The foolish are my people. The civil and the wild are my people. Like Moses in the book of Exodus with Israel, Paul loved. 
their feet were binded together. He felt like their feet were binded together. Paul looked out and said, these are my people. I am them, they are my problem. Paul had read a book that had filled him with a weird evangelical zeal. He'd become convinced that this shattered world will never be put back together unless and until all humans read this book. Maybe the simplest way to say it is Paul wasn't going to be ashamed of the only hope to cover his people's shame. Let me finish with one application for those that are followers of Christ and then we're going to go into communion and we're going to look the gospel straight in the eye. For followers of Christ, I don't think it would be right to finish this message without looking at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When we engage our culture with the gospel, we are going to be shamed. I don't say that to comment on our cultural moment as a slight There just always will be pushback. Whether it be judgment and a dirty look or prison or rejection from your family, depending on where you live in the world. But Paul, he models something for us. In no way do I think when Paul says he is unashamed to believe in the gospel that he meant that he fought against the shame placed on him. In a kind of rah, rah, beat you with my brains, triumphant, shove the truth on your throat kind of way. Rather, he felt he was under obligation to declare truth in love. And he was willing to take their shame in the hope that he could cover them in the honor of God. And so should we. Paul took shame, but he gave honor. In the hope that people would believe. We just need to see people's longings and their passions as not simply as misdirected, but as keys to their hearts. Utopia is a key to a longing for more. Care for our planet is a key to feeling the true story of the world. Ask yourself, what keys do you see in people's lives around you that could lead to a spiritual conversation? Are people... Touching wood when they're hoping for something. As if there's some laws of feet in our universe. Are people adopting animals as, as, at, a, at a selfless rate? As if there is a reason that we should care for creation. Go. Speak in truth and love. Be shamed, but don't be ashamed. I've spoken in very broad strokes about the gospel today. And as we go through this series, that we are going to fill it in 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 more detail. But let me give you this detail today as we go straight through and we introduce communion. I asked the question earlier, what if God was found or God came? What would we deserve for how we've lived? For our sin against each other and our world and ultimately our rejection of him. And his ways. What would we deserve? We would deserve the goodness of God to enact cosmic justice. And we would be found wanting. We'd be found embarrassed at the state of our world. 
But 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is the most concise way to communicate the gospel in these verses this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, For our sake God made Jesus Christ to be sin who know no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake God made Jesus Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is this. We live in a world of shame. Some shame is simply wrong. To be black is not to be ugly. To be an immigrant is not to be lesser. To be poor is not to be less worth. To be unsuccessful is not to be unsuccessful. To be convicted is not to not have a future. To have no children is not to be broken. Our world is broken, and that brokenness makes us victims to a narrative that speaks against our humanity and our worth, a narrative that tells us that we are lesser than we are, and we feel it. We question our worth, our value, our ability. We feel shame for things totally outside of our control. And yet we also live in a world where shame is also right. We do hate. We do lie. We do fight. We do devalue each other and we devalue God and we break his heart. We've made a mess of this planet. And we feel it. We question if we'll ever be able to make things right. Will we be able to fix what we've broken in our hearts and our world? And Paul says, no, you can't. We're going to find out more and more in the book of Romans. It's about, no, you can't. Not with your religious heritage. Not with your moral behavior. Not with your ethnicity or your culture. Not with your power or your wealth. We can't fix what we broke. But because we couldn't, God sent Jesus Christ who can. God sent Jesus Christ who can. The king, the lion, the conqueror, the son, for our sake, to be sin, to take our sin. For just part, God sent Jesus Christ to take all of the darkness and the evil stories that are told about our worth. All the lies that we fall prey to, all the lies that get in to make us believe that we are ugly. God took hold of those lies of Satan. He picked up those lies. He pulled up those lies. He's uprooted those lies. And God took hold of all the sins that we have committed. All the hate that we give, all the destruction that we bring. He took hold of our shame that is wrong. He took hold of our shame that is right. And Jesus, in love, willingly took all the blame for our shame. God made Jesus to be sin. He, to be embarrassed on our behalf for this world. To be naked on our behalf. To hear the lies on our behalf. So we would no longer have to. So the lies today that you hear have no power. The shame of our sin today has no power. It does not define us. It does not hold us. It does not hold our future. Our future is no longer determined by our sin and our shame, but by God's grace and God's love. Because we are clothed in the righteousness of God. Clothed in his honor, beautiful in his beauty, accepted so we can stand as children of God, shameless and free. And one day all of the destruction and all of the trash in our world, Christ will renew and make new. Rogers Park could Paul be ashamed of that? And that is what we're coming now to remember. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, 
he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a time when we come together as followers of Christ and we come and we remember that the death of Jesus on the cross was a moment in history in which we were deeply involved. A moment our sin and our shame was nailed to the cross, finished. Remind yourself today. Speak truth to the lies that you hear today. When you come up, come up on the left side On the left aisle, come up, take a piece of the bread which symbolizes Christ's body given for you. Dip it in the cup which symbolizes Christ's blood shed for your sins. Let's pray. God, we feel the brokenness of this world. We see it in our TVs. We see it in our streets. We see it in our backyards. God, that this world is groaning, that this world needs saving. And God, you knew, and you've seen it. And God, you knew that we could do nothing about it, so you sent Christ to take all of our embarrassment, to take all of our shame, to take all of our mess-ups on himself, so that, God, we could be clothed in what is good, in your righteousness, in your goodness, God, so that if we believe in faith, that if we put our trust in you, God, that we would become one of your children, that we would become yours, and that we would be saved. God, we thank you that we live in that salvation today, that our future is secure, that our hope is secure in you. 